I was really committed to change the way people work because I really said, okay, every one of us, we only have one life. Why are we selling this one life if we can make a better living, earn more money, be more flexible, have more time with the family at the same time? There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Today's guest is Thomas Jajip, who founded Twago, to provide the opportunity for people who are looking to leave their traditional lives and embark on their freelance journeys. Also with me today is Michael Kearns, the Vice President of Enterprise for TopTal. For over 20 years, Michael has worked alongside enterprise executives as they look to drive exponential growth, stay competitive, and prepare for the future of work. My name is Thomas Jaye. I'm a founder and a CEO of a company called Twago. Twago was founded back in 2009 as a freelancer marketplace based out of Europe. And then later we launched a private talent pooling solution for very large corporates and sold the company to Randstad. So we're now a subsidiary of Randstad. Your story is pretty interesting. You traveled and have worked in 40 countries as a consultant and we're traveling around the world and came to a life point where you're like, hey, this is crazy and, and made a change. By the way, something that resonates with me because one of the reasons I became a freelancer was that. But when you travel in 40 countries and meet people and have experiences, that's a pretty powerful experience. Yeah, I, I think it shaped pretty much what I'm doing today. I was working in a management consultancy at that time, as you said, fairly internationally. And I did mainly restructuring projects. So, you know, I was really involved with how work is organized, how important work for people in life is, how they perceive what the value of their job is compared to their family. And it's very different if you compare, you know, different countries all over the globe, what work means in life. And, you know, for myself, I noticed basically my agenda being determined by other people by the consultancy company in that time, which led to the fact that there was not much private life for me. And I asked myself at one point, okay, is that the life I want to live? Or do I want to be more, you know, self-determined in a way? Do I want to drive my future? Or do I want to sell my only single life that I have to a management consultancy that needs me 100 hours a week? And I decided for myself that I don't want to work for a management consultancy anymore. I want to be more flexible. I want to decide with whom I work, when I work, where I work. And, you know, that very much correlates with the trends of freelancing at that time. And then I I looked into the freelancing industry and I said, that's great. You had these pictures from freelancers with, you know, their laptop at the beach and (laughs) and then coding and whatever. And then I said, I'm going to be a freelancer. But then I was like, okay, but I'm not really good in anything. I'm just a (laughs) consultant, you know, I, I can do everything a little bit. I'm not really a Java developer or a front-end developer or whatever. Or designer. Designer. So I said, I love the industry. I can't really be a a consultant. I don't want to be a consultant freelancer. So let's build something for freelancers and let's help this ecosystem to grow. And then I looked at the market. I saw what's happening in the US. I thought uh, with my experience in different European cultures, I was better equipped than the US competition in founding something in Europe. And then we founded Tuago in Europe. It's amazing to me how personal work is. I think what gets lost and what resonates with me when you were just talking 
is we talk about the future of work and we talk about all these things and, and we rarely talk about flexibility or this move to freelancing and the platforms and the technology that's being brought to bear to solve a very personal problem for people, right? How they want to live, spending more time with your family, having somebody else manage your time. You know, your dad was an entrepreneur from Syria and had a bunch of businesses. I have a lot of cousins. My uncles were doctors and so they became doctors and you went into traditional consultancy versus entrepreneurship out the gates. But what did you learn from him in growing up with an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think my parents were very different. My father was and is an entrepreneur. He's trying all kinds of things. Whenever he sees an opportunity, he starts something. And I was, when I was young, I was always like, guy, you have no clue what a printing machine is. Why are you buying printing machines and selling them to another country? You don't know if they're good or bad or whatever, but he saw an opportunity and he did it. And sometimes, most of the times, it actually worked fairly well. And sometimes, you know, he failed and we learned from it. My mother is a bit the opposite. She's rather conservative, has always been employed, is rather risk averse. So we grew up with both of these things. So after my studies, I felt a bit like, you know, when I did my driving license, I had two severe accidents within a few weeks, I think, after the driving license. So when I finished my studies, I was like, okay, I feel a bit like after the driving license, I'm equipped to work now, but I don't have any practice. So I thought the consultancy is a good step for another layer of education in practice. It was clear to me that it's not a lifetime job. I never wanted to become a partner in my consultancy. It was a training on the job program for me. And it was clear to me at one point I wanted to be an entrepreneur like my father and leverage different opportunities. You had both the yin and the yang of the business world working. Now let's talk about Twago a little bit. What is the mission of Twago? Like when you decided to solve this problem of bringing freelancers into the market with a transparent marketplace, what was the mission? I think I explained that I had, um, with my own experience with others determining my agenda, I was really committed to change the way people work because I really said, okay, every one of us, we only have one life. Why are we selling this one life if we can make a better living? earn more money, be more flexible, have more time with the family at the same time. Why are we selling our bodies? It's a bit extreme now, huh? but why are we selling our bodies to these companies? It isn't, so, it isn't. I mean, in some ways it sounds extreme, in some ways it doesn't. Yeah, you know? it depends. I think companies have developed. Nowadays, also, when we talk about flexibility, we talk about spending more time with the family, working from home. We have the 15 years down the road, and I think even in perm employment, companies have adopted these practices because it seems to be common needs of the people nowadays. No matter if you're in perm or in freelance, people are asking for home office, people are asking for all the flexibility. So I think it started in the freelance world, but it is very well reflected also now in the perm world nowadays. When you were starting off with Twago, how long ago was it formed? It's going to be 11 years in March. And so 11 years ago, the idea of a freelance platform was very different than it is today. This year, we've seen a huge movement, at least in the U.S., with big companies like Uber and Lyft and, and Upwork and Fiverr and WeWork tried to go public with just a lot of companies going public. And 10, 11 years ago, when you would go to a company, and you'd say, I've got this thing, it's called a freelance marketplace, and it's, you know, these people all around the world. I want to hear a little bit about the challenges you faced then, and how those challenges have or have not evolved in the past 10 years as you talk to companies that are trying to solve a problem with freelancers. Yeah, I think that it definitely has evolved. I had a good relationship with a couple of German large Fortune 500 companies, 
But when I approached them, they were like, we don't work with freelancers. What is freelancers? I mean, we don't have this. Huh? So they didn't, there was no transparency even, you know, there was a lot of maverick spend. Nobody knew the departments were actually buying on marketing expense or whatever, but it wasn't organized. Nobody knew what it is. Nobody wanted to have it, basically. So most of the users in early times, you know, Odesk, Elance, we've always been very close to Odesk and Elance at that time. And most of the users of these platforms were basically acting as consumers. For me, it's a B2B2C platform in the end that where restaurants or small law firms or sports clubs, you know, need a website or a logo or a startup. But in the end, there's an individual behind a screen that decides how to procure something and he has a credit card that he pays for. It's not the it wasn't a purchase order through the procurement system. Exactly. And it's not the MSP or the field class of this world that has an organized procurement process, not the large companies using those services. Yeah, that was one of the things when you, you talk to the folks at Upwork, it's called rogue spend. Like they walk into an account and they say, you know, my company doesn't use freelancers. And like, well, 30 people from your company actually do use freelancers. And so 11 years ago, there was a lot of that rogue spend. Now, when you go now and have a conversation with companies in Germany or across Europe, how does that conversation go? Are they more educated or are you still seeing that you're providing a lot of the education to those companies? Yeah, I think it differs. I still have these conversations that people tell me we don't use freelancers, but nowadays it's much easier to prove them wrong. Also, you know, looking at the outlook, even if they are right, I don't think it's a sustainable strategy to not use freelancers because they would probably omit 30% of the working population in a couple of years. So you win these arguments fairly easy. And then it's more the question of, okay, how can we do this? There's a lot of fear in terms of compliance, co-employment risks, and so on and so on. So it's more about how do you jointly solve a problem that they have? And then still, there's still a lot of, you called it rogue spend. I had mentioned Maverick spend earlier. So all the long tail spend, I think there's still a lot of small SOWs that are not within the procurement process. I think most of the jobs that go through procurement are these either very large SOWs or the time and material jobs. You know, I need a person on site in Ontario for eight months to do an SAP implementation. This is like the typical contingent job that goes through procurement. But if somebody needs a logo or whatever, it would still very often be, be rogue spend, I think. When I started the program at, at Microsoft, I was talking to the procurement team and the HR team, and we got to the word project. And they said, well, our program today does projects. And to your point, when they thought about a project, they thought about time and materials or a pretty significant SOW or BPO relationship or managed service. When I think of a project and engaging with freelancers, I think of much smaller pieces of work that may accrue to something like a big project, but it's broken down into its parts and I engage the right freelancer for the right thing. And so the taxonomy I found when talking to companies around what size project is good for freelancers versus other models is an interesting one. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think on top of the taxonomy, it is also a skill problem. I think a lot of hiring managers nowadays do not get trained very well with those new technologies. And they are familiar with organizing work in a way they have always organized it. And that's the big SOWs and the time and material. But platforms like the TopTals, the Upworks, the Twagos, they enable a different way of working, but they also require a different way of thinking and how you scope those tickets. So instead of scoping or writing a project description for an eight-month project with a 10-man team on-site in Ontario, you could also you know, slice it into pieces, um, have some people work remote, some people might need to be on-site, whatever. But you need to also think of how the work is organized differently to leverage those platforms properly. 
because it is different. It's not just a new MSP being implemented or a new piece of technology. The onus is on the hiring manager, the person trying to get the project and the work done to rethink how things are done. So you work with a lot of companies primarily in the EU, but around the world, how are you seeing attitudes on remote work shift or are they shifting? Yeah, they will definitely shift, I believe. But the shift is very slow and and gradual. And I see, of course, the maturity in this change is higher in the US than it is in Europe at the moment. So I think platforms like TopTal, like Upwork, have been promoting remote work quite nicely in the US. While in Europe, the visibility of those platforms is still a bit smaller. So most of the jobs we encounter are on-site jobs still. Nevertheless, the buyers have changed. So the buyers know that the end game, they will need to be able to leverage remote work. So if you talk to them more strategically about total talent, about how will the setup look like in five or 10 years from now, they very well acknowledge that there needs to be a component that enables remote work. Nevertheless, the hiring community is not there today. So hiring managers today, what I see at least 90% would ask for an on-site resource in Europe. What specifically is driving that? Do you hear either the, the reasons why it has to be on-site or the objections for remote? Well, I think there are two different aspects of remote work. So let's say there's on-site work, there's remote, but in the same language, and there's remote offshore. Americans have the luxury to talk to everyone in the world in their mother tongue. Europeans don't. A lot of Europeans... If you look at hiring managers, they're managers, so they have made their career in, in companies. They're not 25, they're whatever, in their 50s. And then you have countries that are, you know, better English speakers like Scandinavia or the Netherlands. And you have countries that have a harder time learning a new language. And then if you are somewhere in the middle of France and you might not even have to have English in school, and then you're 50 and you're a hiring manager, it's very unlikely that you hire an Indian programmer and try to run a project with him. That's not your natural behavior. So it's more likely that you hire a French guy from Paris that remotely works on your project in French and whatever, once a week joins your team for a kickoff. So I think it will be a journey. Americans have this luxury that they speak with everyone in the world in their mother tongue. And we have to help the people on that journey. I appreciate a lot if you said you wrote a book, so I'm going to buy it and I'm going to give it to our customers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's also a big opportunity, actually, for the MSP providers to create more value if they go into educating and really enabling organizations to use this new technology platforms and this new way of working. You mentioned MSP providers, and obviously your company was acquired by a large staffing firm that has, you know, obviously staffing capabilities but also an MSP, what have been the barriers and the challenges of getting MSP programs to adopt these new ways of engaging talent? Not just remote, but this idea of freelance, etc. So I guess I'd be interested to hear you both from a general European market perspective talk about the challenges and the barriers, but also now you're within one, and I'd be curious to see if you're feeling the same barriers from the inside that you were from the outside. Yeah, I mean, I think there is desire to change on all levels. So it's European clients, it's American clients, it's MSP providers and all. Nevertheless, we are working in this industry, we are running platforms. So it's our only interest to basically 
help this economy to grow and to grow our companies and to facilitate the new way of working. There are a lot in MSP providers or in large enterprise buyers, there are a lot of other priorities. The transitioning process is very slow. You don't have the right people in place that are able to make the change. If you take a random MSP provider, and I don't need to talk about Randstad in particular, but if you take any MSP provider, historically, program managers with a recruitment background run MSP programs on site for clients, and they're very good in executing this, but they're not technology experts. And they're not becoming technology experts by going once a year to a conference in Las Vegas where they see 2,000 vendors. You need different people, and uh, it's a transition. The whole solution design, I think MSP providers started to adopt technologies. Oh, this is great. Let's put this into the program. Oh, this is great. Let's put this into the program. But I think you need more a holistic view on things. And sometimes you even need aggregating layers or underlaying data layers. So just plugging in one solution after the other won't solve the problem. And I think everybody in this journey, clients, MSP providers, also we, how we do sales, we're learning I've been talking to companies that said, ah, we tried this whole thing with the gig economy and it didn't work. <laughs> like, what do you mean you tried this with the gig economy? Yeah, we've used like large platforms and it doesn't work. I said, okay, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? There are so many different problems. Are you looking for on-site? Are you looking for remote? Are you looking for professionals or are you looking for blue color? Are you looking for short gigs or long? I mean, yeah, nobody would... I mean, Upwork is a great platform. I love Stefan. Hi, Stefan, by the way. <laughs> but I would not recommend anybody to use Upwork if they're looking for on-site resources in Toulouse. It's just the wrong solution to a problem. I think that one of the things that you had talked about earlier, especially your experience in restructuring companies, is you're not only asking people to adopt new technology, but you're asking them to reinvent how they work. And, and in my experience if I'm talking to sort of procurement people and HR people in the contingent space or independent workspace, they've been doing a lot of vendor rationalization because look, their programs just got out of control and they're now trying to get them into control. And some of them are starting the process. Okay, now I've got it in control and I'm going to start innovating. And so I think there's a journey there for a lot of programs that they're just not ready to have the conversation with on-demand platforms. Because to your point, their priorities have been, I have a ton of money being spent and I need to fix it. And you'd look at that and say, yeah, you're probably right. When you think of changing hiring managers and really teaching them, you know, like if you went in with the same mindset, so let's say you're a hiring manager in, in a marketing department, right? you know, you're 40 or 50 years old and you've been working in a certain way. And, and now let's say you need to scale or there's a new product coming out. You have some sort of constraint that you want to solve, but now you have to fundamentally change the way you work. You have to figure out how to adopt remote work which is to a lot of people just a completely radical new process of, what do you mean? I'm hiring somebody off the internet and I'm going to trust them with a project that my boss is. And you have to train them on technology. How do we educate hiring managers to change the way they work when they've been rewarded for the past 10 or 15 or 20 years on that current way of working? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of many, many things. And I think hiring managers need to have the feeling that they can fail in this process. They can make mistakes. They can learn. And that's a management task. So how are these people incentivized? How is the management committed to a new way of working? Of course, in an environment where you are afraid to lose your job when you make a mistake, then it's hard to embrace change. 
But if management is committed to this change, and I think then it can happen. The other point is, I disagree with some statements of my fellow competitors that the traditional staffing companies or the traditional MSP suppliers are redundant in this new world. I think they have a very important role. It might not be the database because online platforms are bigger, are better in creating big databases, vetting the data and, and making things automated. But they have a relationship with the hiring communities. They're on site. They need to educate. They need to become the experts and to embrace the technology. So I think there's a big task for MSP providers in that journey. And then, of course, initiatives like this staffing.com, initiatives like Upwork is really doing nice work in terms of embracing remote work. They're great initiatives to generally like educate the market. So it's a combination. We have to do something as platforms. The traditional suppliers need to play a role and management in companies need to embrace this change. You brought something up and I think there's a lot of confusion, I think, in the market. I'd be curious how you differentiate between freelance and staffing. Yeah, there is a strong historic differentiation. So in the past, you had staffing companies and then you had professional companies that were hiring freelancers and supplying them to corporates. I really think that the type of contract in the next, whatever, let's say 10, 15 years will become more and more irrelevant to the hiring community. So my dream would be that a hiring manager would not differentiate between right. freelancer and staffing. He would just say, I need this expert for that job. And my deadline is that. And maybe if it's on site, he would say, I need them in Ontario because he needs to work with my people like face to face for whatever reason. And then this would go to people that could judge, you know, based on legal requirements, compliance, whether this can be a freelance job or this is maybe a perm assignment or staffing or whatever. So there are some legal constraints that would allow or not allow certain frameworks. But in the perfect world, for me, this hiring manager would get an offer from a freelancer, an offer for a perm hire for nine months, and maybe an offer through an agency. And then he just picks the best candidate. So for me, it's more about who's the best candidate. And then, unfortunately, we have a very complicated legal framework that we need to comply to. But When I started working with freelancers, it became less about the expert. At the end of the day, that was a first I had to define my outcome. And I think a lot of times hiring managers don't fully understand the outcome they want. And so they go to us, they think they understand what expert they need and they put a job description, which is kind of what they're thinking. And they're kind of learning as they're going along. And one of the changes I had to make in the way I work, you know, talking about structural changes in work was I had to do the thinking up front and say, okay, this is my outcome and this is my timeline. And when I had that and I put it into a system, then it was easy to identify the expert and, and say, oh, okay, what kind, is this a managed service? Is this a freelancer? And so that was part of the retraining that I had to do for myself was really write the detail requirement. I mean, there's a difference in writing an SOW and handing it off to a staffing firm and then they kind of write the SOW for you versus going to a freelance platform where literally the job description is the work that needs to be delivered, the milestones, and it's very specific because somebody's bidding on the exact work. Yeah, a lot of times people don't do this pre-work and really detail out a project description. Very often also on project start even, during the, you know, we usually use payroll or brokerage companies to contract the freelancers, then they would raise that the job description is not clear enough, the task is not clear enough, you know, to be legally compliant. And then 
also, if we look at it, you know, after three months, after six months, after nine months, the job changes because, you know, there's learning throughout the process. So there needs to be revalidation of what has really been done from a legal perspective. So I think also our governments have to understand that this new way of working brings different challenges to companies. And it's not always super clear what needs to be done at the very beginning. I would love to see that it is like you described in your case. But I have job postings that look like I want to work with Mark Miller. I need him for nine months. Name job posting. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, what's Mark going to do? And how do you, you know, we, and you know, I did. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the work that I did or the innovation projects that I did did not change, but I felt that I, I had to do a lot of upfront thinking because I wanted to be more efficient. I wanted to take advantage of the idea that there could be an expert, the right expert, to help me really accelerate stuff from the get-go. And I, there, in working this way, there's a lot more load on the hiring manager at first until you realize like it'll pay off later. And I think that's the key point, though, is is that it will pay off later. It's a little extra work up front to get a lot of returns later down the road in terms of efficiency, effectiveness, clarity. And quality. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it seems, I don't know if you've seen this, but it almost seems like right now people decide which, kind of I'll call it talent sourcing channel, they want to engage before they think about the work or the people they need, right? Like, this is going to be an employee. This is going to be a staffing rack. This is going to be an SOW. This is going to be freelance. And they kind of start there and then go down the path versus here's what I need. And I love the way you said it is here's what I need. Let me see what the options are from all my different channels. I mean, do you see that becoming a reality anytime soon? It starts with technology. Huh? The hiring community today already needs to decide whether they put their request into an ATS or into a VMS or right. whatever, even if Upwork, as an example, sometimes creates a silo next to it even. Yeah? They don't integrate usually with the MSP provider. So the hiring community has actually to think about what legal contract type will I have before they even see any kind of contact. So I think that needs to change. And I think we see already MSP and RPO programs blending. I don't fully understand the move from field class in the direction of Ariba, I would have rather expected them to merge with the organizations with success factors. But yep. I think ATS and VMS systems will blend. And we see a lot of companies that try to solve this total talent approach nowadays. So I think it will change. And I see mature companies I'm talking to totally having this on their agenda and trying to create channels how they enable their hiring managers to exactly not take this decision up front. The thing that's been interesting is the creation of the word total talent. Yeah, you know, I think the progress, you know, when I look at the progress and just the progress in the language, the idea that HR and procurement are now having joint meetings together and looking at uh, talent in a holistic way, not in the silos of, well, I'm in HR and my job is permanent employees and my, you know, and I procure independent workers. And so I think just the conversation around total talent and strategies that companies are putting together and that's only in the past, what, couple of years. So I think it bodes well for the, the platforms like Duago and the others. One more question around collaboration and the competition. So you've spoken highly about a number of the various platforms. And, you know, one of the driving forces behind the work we're doing at staffing.com is really to give a voice for the progressive nature of, of where things are, just not evenly distributed, and where they're going as it relates to on-demand and, and remote. How do you think of cooperation and partnerships among the various platforms as well as with the MSPs? Like there's an ecosystem here and 
nobody wins by everybody trying to create their own and not collaborating. What does collaboration look like? So I believe a lot in collaboration and I've always been in close contact with Stefan or before with Gary and and Fabio from the two uh, companies that jointly became Upwork later on. Nobody can win this game alone. Also, if I look how different the business models and the solutions are, let's say TopTal and Twago, the offerings, there is no gig economy. I hate the term gig economy because it indicates that there's one problem and there will be one solution and there's a winner takes it all scenario. And I don't think this will be the case because the problems are so diverse. And complex. And complex. So I would love to bring TopTal or Upwork or whoever if I meet a client that has a need that would be satisfied by those platforms. You know, I have been asked from other marketplaces if I could run a private talent pool because they're looking for very specialized on-site people, for example, where typically marketplaces have a harder time to deliver. So I think if you look at the different problems in this gig economy, there's space for a lot of solutions. There's a lot of education work to be done. That's why I really like this initiative with staffing.com. And I think nobody will be able to make it alone. So I appreciate a lot any kind of collaboration. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, you know, one of the concerns across all these different channels or options or terms, but one of the biggest concerns about the increase in, let's just call it alternative ways of working, right? So working outside of the context of being a full-time, long-term employee of a company. There's a concern that as that increases, and right, the trends are that that's increasing, that it'll have a negative impact on people's ability to drive a career, find meaningful work, make a living, take care of their families. What's your perspective? Is it something that is inevitable but will have a negative impact on workers? Or do you think there's a possibility that it can have a positive impact on workers and help them find more opportunity, more meaningful work, more flexibility? Well, I obviously think that it will have a positive impact and not a negative one. And I also, what I don't understand is people always talk about the traditional form of working. But if you look at it from a a bit higher level, what is a traditional form of working? The traditional form of working is not being employed. The whole employment kind of status is just existing for 150 years. Before that, everybody was a freelancer freelancer (laughs) or self-employed. So if you talk about the traditional form of working, everybody had a small business and I was a blacksmith and this guy was whatever, but everybody did something and only very few people had employees. So I think once the capitalism basically grew in our economies and companies became bigger and bigger, this form of labor was the more favored one. And it suggests more safety. I don't think actually that there is more safety. Of course, there are minorities that need to be protected. So I'm a big fan of freelancing if you want to freelance. So if you want to be flexible, if you want to decide on your customers, decide on your project, of course, you know, the cleaning lady that is actually working through a platform, all her jobs are through a platform and she has to work below minimum wage because the platform pays her per flat and not per hour. Is she really self-employed? I don't know. Does she need protection? Probably yes. Does the $150 per hour Java developer need the same level of protection that is freelancer per choice? I don't think so. So I think the lawmakers need to be a bit more differentiating in how they treat freelancers. I just see benefits. I don't think that any of, I mean, uh, TopTal has a, has a very elite group of people. I think if you would do a survey along them and ask them how many of you are afraid that next year they will not have a job, you know, the return rate will be probably close to 0%. 
So I don't think that those people currently have a problem finding a job. There's no security problems. They're not pushed into something. They're not abused because some other person has the upper hand in terms of the contractual relationship. So I just see positive things. Of course, you have to make sure that nobody abuses this vehicle for pushing people into freelance that are actually not freelancers. So if I give you a crystal ball, in one sentence, in five years, what has changed? I think the traditional staffing companies, MSP, VMS, RPO providers, will have learned to navigate through the jungle of digital solutions or new way of working and will be smart and trusted advisors for their large corporates, clients, and will have good relationships with solution providers. When you say solution providers, you mean... I mean the top tells the upworks. The, but it doesn't even always need to be like talent supply. It can be also, you know, whatever, credentialing or yeah. vetting or whatever you mean. And there's a much more organized approach in terms of what is the problem you're trying to solve, what is a potential solution design for that specific problem. I think we'll still struggle with remote work in five years from now. I think there will be continuously adoption. And uh, I see remote work also... The first level of adoption will be probably with known resources. So if a large corporate like Cisco has good working relationships with freelancers in South America, they might start using them also in North America. Or, I mean, Cisco is now a bad example because they're very mature in what they do. But all over the world, it is probably like this. Yeah, so I think it's a longer journey than five years. You're saying that the industry will start to adopt more digital tools and be open to it, and there'll be partnerships, acquisitions, and all sorts of things, sort of like what you experienced yeah. at Rensa. And I don't think that's probably a different opinion than some of my colleagues have. I don't think that the traditional staffing companies will disappear. Yeah, I agree that it's much more of a hybrid total. The total talent term actually resonates with me because it's inclusive, not exclusive. And I think a lot of the conversation sometimes go to this binary, to your point, winner takes all. And human capital is a much more complex world than maybe getting me a taxi cab or some of the other gig models, I think you said. And one good example was the, one of the first digital evolutions in that space were the whole job board thing you know, with uh, Monster and mm -hmm. then later on Indeed. And at that time, they were probably saying, oh, and they're going to put all the staffing exactly. companies out of business. All the recruiting companies out yeah, of business. All the recruiting yeah. companies. And what happened is that all the recruiting companies became the most mature users of those technologies, and they advised their clients in how to use them properly, and they organized the workflows. And I think the same will happen here again. Yeah, and it's happening right now with LinkedIn. I mean, look at LinkedIn yeah. and, and the power that LinkedIn tools are bringing to the staffing industry as well. You know, you've been on this journey since you founded Twago for almost 11 years. What is the biggest change in thinking that you've had? So kind of the thing that when you started you thought was absolutely true that you now realize is no longer true or vice versa. What's the biggest kind of... You won't expect this, but for me that's a very personal question. I've studied on a very good university. I went to management consultancy. I was in my mid-20s. I've worked in 40 countries. I've had a fairly good education and career from a European standard. And when we founded Twago, even though I didn't know, I thought, I know it. I know everything. I'm right. It was very hard for my people to work with me in the first years because I knew a little bit of everything. I was quite sharp in terms of probing, asking the right questions, being analytical in these discussions. And I always had the feeling, I know better. And uh, it was really a journey to learn that this last rule, sometimes you're wrong. And this sometimes is not actually not rare. I would say I'm 
I'm wrong in, in a good percentage of cases uh, right. when I discuss with my team. So I, I needed to learn to trust that I hire experts. I hire a designer because he's a better designer than I am. I hire a programmer because he's a better programmer than I am. I hire a sales guy because he's a better sales guy than I am. And if they want to do things differently, I can say my opinion as a user, as a partner to challenge them, but I would not overrule them. They have to take the final decision. They have to make the call how they want to run their part of the business. And if I don't trust them and they do mistakes, you know, I have to exchange them. But as long as I have an expert in place, they're the decision makers, not me just because I'm the founder or the CEO. That was the thing that I think it took like five years, six <laughs> years to learn this. I think your team is going to enjoy, like, I think you just take this clip and give it to the team saying, hey. I don't know if they would agree that I... <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. So this is the rapid fire question section. I have five questions here that I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you, say the first thing that comes to your mind. What's one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? I have two cats and two kids. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Probably Donald Trump and I would uh, resign. <laughs> <laughs> if you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want to bring with you? A laptop and my wife. What book or movie has inspired you the most over the past year? There's two books, one business book, one private book, which I very much appreciated. There's a the Netflix founder wrote a book called That Will Never Work. It's a great book for entrepreneurs, I believe. And the other one's called The Five Languages of Love, and it's about how you keep your marriage alive. Last question. As CEO of Twago, is it more important to be radically curious or have attention to detail? You have to pick one. Radically curious. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a conversation with us. If somebody wants to get in touch with you or learn more about Twago, what's the best way to do that? Either LinkedIn or email. Thomas Yai on LinkedIn, you'll find it. I'm the, I have a very unique name or uh, thomas.yai at twago.com, email address. And we'll put all that in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Hey, thanks Definitely. a lot and good luck on your continued personal journey. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.